Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the New Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. John Frederick. This is 5.2, Satan is annoying, real, and ultimately terribly unsuccessful. Today, as we round the corner of this series, we're going to talk about how to interpret New Testament language about evil powers and the devil. Our beginning passage today is 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5, and it introduces Satan into the mix. And this this causes a good deal of cognitive dissonance for the contemporary reader. What are we to make of angels and demons and all sorts of supernatural stuff as contemporary people? Is the battle between good and evil like an ancient version of Star Wars in which a true balance between good and evil actually exists as equal and opposite forces? Is Jesus a Jedi and Satan a dark Sith? Are we supposed to demythologize these phenomena and find the so-called timeless truth inside the ancient mythological kernel? In this episode, we'll take a look at how Jesus and the apostles conceive of evil powers. And we'll talk about how we should then deal with them in the present age by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin by hearing the word of God. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 through 3, verse 5. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope? What is our joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our crown. You are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother, our co-worker, in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ. We sent him to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Now, this is a really interesting passage to me. And there's a lot that we could unpack if we had endless time. And I'd love to do that some other time. The key thing I want to focus on today, though, is this sense that Paul seems legitimately nervous about the real possibility that Satan will disrupt the work that he did among the Thessalonians. Furthermore, Paul outright attributes his delay in visiting the Thessalonians to Satan blocking his way. We see an even stronger emphasis on the spiritual realm and what is usually called spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. 
And I want you to hear what Paul writes there. Hear the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of grace and peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Pray with this in mind and be alert. Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. I love that. Paul's prayer is that he should be fearless and bold in his proclamation of the gospel. Is that how you feel when you think about how you speak about your faith and how you are committed to Jesus Christ? Is it fearlessness? Typically, there are two kinds of responses to this sort of thing and to the instances of Jesus healing and casting out demons in the gospel, all those sort of things. There's two types of ways that people respond. Some who are maybe inclined to focus intensely on this sort of thing or whose cultural setting predisposes them maybe to consider evil spirits to be the cause of most of the social and personal ills that they face, those kind of folks will heavily emphasize the influence of the demonic realm, attributing key roles to actual demons and evil spirits in basically all of the negative experiences that occur in their lives and in the day-to-day -day events of their societies. For them, everything is a result of a demonic force. On the other hand, mostly in the West, the demons, the spiritual powers, these are often demythologized. They're thought to metaphorically represent easily explainable mental, emotional, psychological, physical health conditions. Ultimately, I think that neither of these responses hits the mark. Clearly, for the New Testament, spiritual powers exist. And they are much more than just a metaphor for other things like psychological problems. Yet, much like the over-obsession with the end times and the rapture and all sorts of other things, it's just not the case that every negative experience that we have, every sinful act that we commit, 
is the result of some demonic attack from a personal demon bent on making us fail. Oftentimes, the devil made me do it. It's just a sad subterfuge to deflect responsibility onto a demonic force. When, in actuality, if we listen to the teaching of Jesus, it is out of the human heart that most sinful activity finds its genesis. While Satan may be the prince of the power of the air, according to Ephesians 2, that same text also says that we are by nature children of wrath. Paul elsewhere calls this the flesh, which is sometimes translated the sinful nature. And it means that apart from any demonic intervention, we are already, as the hymn says, prone to sin, prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. So the first thing I think we can take away from texts like these is that when it comes to demons and the devil, spiritual powers, they're real. They can and do interfere in the course of human history by attempting to thwart the plans of God and thwart the coming of his kingdom. But we must pivot immediately and also leave room for a healthy dose of self-derived human sinfulness and stupidity, not allowing ourselves to simply default to scapegoating Satan for our every failure. It's a mistake to both obsess over the nature and appearance and personality of demons, and it's also a mistake to demythologize them. We need not worry about what the demonic powers are, whether or not they have wings or horns or hooves and, you know, all the rest of this stuff. We don't need to speculate about their personality, none of that to affirm that they exist. I mean, look at our world, right? It is basically possessed by evil ideologies that have caused us to commit un thinkable, atrocious acts of violence and dehumanization that stretch our mind beyond its capacity for even imagining the evils that we have and will commit at the hands of human beings. We can affirm with Paul that Satan hinders us and that we're battling not merely with human forces, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You know, it's worth noting when we read Ephesians that the language of standing or standing firm, this is not an invitation by Paul to be passive in regard to evil in the world and the evil powers in the world. After all, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul himself outright affirms that his own mission is being hindered by evil powers. And he really worries that the church might be led off track by the devil. In Ephesians, the Greek language translated stand firm can also be translated stand against the powers. And so for Paul, spiritual warfare is a reality. Even if Paul doesn't view it through the lens of some weird assortment of demons, you know, speculated in the Middle Ages and captured in popular art, it's often the case that we assume that because we haven't run into something with wings and hooves looking like it crawled out of Middle Earth in Lord of the Rings, that we reckon spiritual warfare is not a problem for me. But 
to discard the Bible's teaching on spiritual powers because of a flawed perception of demonic beings created by Dante and Hollywood and Halloween decorations, that would be a grave mistake. As C.S. Lewis has argued, this contributes to the devil's greatest deception, namely seeking to convince us that he doesn't exist. It is true. When we feel that we are being personally, spiritually attacked, we do not need to ask, is this the nefarious doing of a demon by the name of Leonardo? And does he have a pitchfork? If, you know, our breakfast has been suspiciously ruined, we need not inquire as to whether or not this resulted from the incursion of Trisha, the toast devil, dark overlord of scorched bread. Yet, in the same breath, it really would be contrary to the scriptures and to our own observation of the total cumulative disaster of world history and to Jesus' own view of the spiritual evil forces to simply say, the spiritual forces are merely mythological. They're merely ways of talking about things like psychological health problems. Now, with speculative questions of demonic metaphysics aside, and with no apologies to Leonardo or Trisha, stay away from my toast, you she-devil, it is worth asking, so what? What does this have to do with us in the 21st century? Perhaps it is helpful to note here what theologian Walter Wink has shown us, that in the scriptures, invisible spiritual powers always work through tangible external means. Let me say that again, because it's really important. Invisible spiritual powers always work through tangible external means. I mean, Jesus himself teaches this in Luke chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. Hear the word of God. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept, clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. In fact, in scripture, if we look and do word studies, the language of powers, principalities, thrones, rulers, authorities, these refer more often to human institutions and to public offices than to spiritual powers. Now, this, of course, does not diminish the fact that spiritual powers exist. It just goes to show that while we are looking for the cloven hooves of a pitchfork-wielding devil, we might pass right over the devil in our midst the devil working through the evils that we perpetuate in our structures, in our systems, narratives, and worldviews. The devil works his power through tangible human structures. And it would be truly bizarre to interpret, for example, the Holocaust as the result of mere human evil, yet this is precisely what happens all the time in Christian culture. We personalize the devil's interactions with us 
blaming him for our own sinful proclivities. And then we sort of minimize his destructive campaign on the world by which he has bewitched and possessed entire continents and cultures away from the hope and peace that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have it precisely backwards. You see, it is the powers who orchestrate every human atrocity in history through the mediation of personal and structural human agents, thereby oppressing humanity in an attempt to impede or thwart the coming of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Only, they never come up on our spiritual radar because we're looking for the devils of medieval artwork rather than the faces ideas, and institutions of ordinary people who have become mediating pawns in a cosmic spiritual war. Thus, in contemporary Christianity, the powers have really benefited from our passive abdication of action in favor of our pious and harmless thoughts and prayers. They have never faced the full force of our ecclesial assault. In fact, As we have remained aloof in our Gnostic religiosity, the powers have actually been strengthened. By excusing ourselves from social and cultural action, we've removed ourselves from the front lines of the spiritual war. We have restricted our sphere of influence to the circumference of our sanctuaries, relegating our spiritual response to the powers to subsidiary spaces of minimal importance, like the sidebar of our weekly prayer bulletins. Paul does not command us to stand still in Ephesians. He commands us to stand against the powers, to rise against them, to reject them, to run headfirst at them, and to disarm them by the power of the gospel. The readiness given by the gospel of peace It's not a stationary, standby readiness that stands still and stands down while awaiting further orders in a state of missional flux and evangelical ambiguity or even apathy. We have received our holy orders and we have been equipped with God's own righteousness and God's own readiness to successfully fulfill those orders. The battle between evil and good is not an equal match. It's not a Star Wars story. Christ has already won the victory in his death and in his resurrection. He's defeated sin. He's defeated Satan. He's defeated death. Any power that the powers have is like a battery that's being drained of its energy. But the energy and the vitality and the power of God goes on for eternity. As 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54 through 56 says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and when the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
since we are clothed in the armor of the one who's already won the victory, Jesus, let us race into the spiritual battle, knowing that we do so not as a network of salvation solo soldiers relying on our own acquisition of virtue to empower our performance, but let us do so as one body in Christ, wearing the very armor of God, partaking in the divine life, the fullness and power of God. The time for standing still has long passed. Let us stand up together, stand firm, and stand against the powers as the body of Christ, the church, the corporate ambassador of the covenant faithfulness of God, through which he is making all things new. I'll catch you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.